selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. Rather than an article, episode 29 features audio of our Q&A event at Dublin Sugar Club from the 3rd of March. The panel of Philippe Clare, James Horncastle and Jonathan Wilson covered a range of topics from Twitter and questions from the audience, including plenty of chat on this year's Premier League title race, Arsene Wenger and Arsenal, the Champions League, Antonio Conte, Euro 2016 and the Chinese Super League to name but a few. We've decided to split the audio from the evening into two parts, as we felt that two hours of football chat was a little unwieldy for the average podcast. Before we bring you the first half, we'd like to remind you that Issue 20 is now available for subscribers to download, and goes on general sale from Monday the 14th of March. It would have been remiss of us not to grab the editor's thoughts on the upcoming issue while we were in Dublin, and so we managed to grab five minutes with Jonathan in a somewhat noisy hotel bar. Apologies for the noise in the background, and the eagle-eared of you, if that is a phrase, will be able to just pick out the dulcet tones of James Horncastle and Philippe O'Claire at an adjacent table. I began by asking Jonathan what he was looking forward to most in the upcoming issue. Um, well, we've gone in a, a couple of different directions. We've got, we got a crossword for the first time. Um, we've got a, a lot more, I, I think, very personal pieces of how, how football has, has shaped people's lives. So James Young, who's a Northern Irish journalist, lived in Manchester for a while, now lives in Brazil. Yeah, his story of moving to Brazil, a broken relationship, um, and and watching his team in Brazil in, in Recife uh, first of all get relegated to the fourth division, and then their their fight back as, as he tries to put his life back on track, and that's just an extraordinary story. Him going to away games with you know, these ultras from, um, from from this tiny Brazilian team uh, with a background of drug trafficking, and I mean, it, astonishing story. We've got an interview with um, Zanek Zeman talking about players that he's he's brought on uh, and players talking about him. Uh, we've got a photo essay and uh, words alongside it uh, looking at Moldova and, and 
the, the relationship there between Transnistria, the, the, the breakaway republic and, and the main body of Moldova and how that's played out through football. Um, we got, we got a, a, a really lovely long piece on, on Zenit um, before they were rich, before the sponsorship. I mean, some astonishing stories of just... They missed a plane coming back from a game in Vladivostok in, I think, the 94, so early 90s anyway. And just, the, yeah, they had no money. So this astonishing journey, kind of blagging their way onto a military plane, having to take buses and trains, their families not knowing where they were. Um, so, yeah, the, the usual mix of very um, eclectic stuff, but some, I think a lot more, maybe a lot more human emotion than we've often, often had in the past. Uh, one piece that you didn't mention there that I picked up on flicking through the uh, the early proofs was uh, Jared Kimber, who's a, an Australian cricket writer predominantly, mm-hmm. uh, who's written his first piece about football. Uh, it's one that we probably won't cover on the <laughs> podcast, uh, just because I don't think iTunes has enough explicit tags to put ahead of it. Um, but that's one that people may well want to, to pick out and read, because he's a, an interesting writer who hasn't written about football before. Very yeah, much. it's a great piece, and it's... Um I mean, he, he, he's a wonderful writer who, who swears very, very fluently indeed. I mean, I suspect there's more, there's more swear words in that one piece than in the other 1.6 million words of Blizzard put together. Um, but there's a, there's a lyricism to his swearing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, he, you know, he goes to Crystal Palace v Swansea. He'd never been to a football game before. He's watched sport all over the world. You know, he's been, you know, he, he, when he was growing up in Melbourne, he obviously went to watch a lot of cricket, a lot of Aussie rules. And so he's an outsider going to a game and, and pointing out what he finds unusual, what he finds different, but also similarities to what, what he, he was aware of in you know, a working-class culture watching sports in Melbourne, working-class culture watching sport in South London, where he now lives, and, and comparing and contrasting them. And I, you know, I, think it's, I think it's valuable to get an outsider's view sometimes, especially when it's an outsider. You know, he's an informed outsider. He's an outsider who kind of gets sport. Um, but he, I think he's got a very perceptive eye, and uh, he, he, you know, he swears better than almost anybody else I've ever met. <laughs> and a lot of people listen to these live event podcasts who maybe don't listen to the traditional articles or maybe haven't come across uh, the Blizzard before. If you could sum it up in a quick 30-second pitch about what the Blizzard is, why it's important that people should download it, buy an issue, try it out, what, what would you be saying to the, the first-time customer? When we set up Blizzard, we wanted to be about the writing. We didn't want to. Um, we didn't want to look at the audience. Really, we weren't looking for the commercial side of things. We weren't looking at what would get good advertising, what would sell. Well, we're looking at what pieces are in and of themselves pieces that, that, that deserve coverage, that deserve a platform. Um, and that means that we have some very long pieces. That means we have some very obscure pieces. It means we have some very strange pieces. Pieces that basically wouldn't see the light of day in, in more mainstream media, in media that are concerned with with profit. Um, and what that has has led to over the five years we've been doing it. And this, you know, this is our twentieth issue, which is uh, an anniversary. I think we we never thought we'd get to. Is you have this now? We have this community of writers who when they have something they're really passionate about they want to write about that they know they couldn't get in a, a mainstream newspaper magazine they come to us and and they are paid as a percentage of profit they're not doing it for the money because that profit is often not huge and the flip side of that is that we pay as you want that we, we recognize not everybody has a huge income so if you want to pay a penny for the um, digital version then you can pay a penny I mean obviously we'll eventually come around and beat you up if you keep doing that but um, if you want to try it out, a penny is fine. If, you, if you're if you a student, if you're unemployed, if you just don't have very much money, 
pay what you can afford. That's that's fine. Conversely, if you do have money, then, then please pay over the odds to subsidise those people who can't. And hopefully, this community of of people who are interested in football is 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 more than just the top of the Premier League, the top of the Champions League. Uh, hopefully, that community can continue to to grow. With that bit of admin out the way, we now bring you the first half of our Dublin Q and A, hosted by Owen McDevitt of Second Captains. Thanks a million, folks, and you're very welcome to the Sugar Club tonight. Glad you could make it in the middle of the weirdest title race in the history of the Premier League. If anyone actually has a clue what's going on at the moment in the Premier League, you're more than welcome to sit up here and try to explain it to the rest of the room. Huge crowd here, which uh, I'm sure the lads are delighted to see. I saw Bernie Roney uh, last night describe the league as a slow bicycle race of a title running. Unfortunately for Man City, Arsenal and Spurs, they all stopped pedalling at the exact same time last night, which leaves Leicester City looking pretty good. We're going to have to lay our cards on the table here. Who thinks Leicester are going to win the league? Who thought Leicester were going to win the league at the start of the season? I thought we had a few shifty characters in here already. Uh, okay, ton of questions I'm sure you all have for our esteemed Blizzard panel tonight. And we'll pop a couple of microphones around the place in a few minutes' time. Introducing France football's Philippe Auclair, who's literally written the book on FIFA. Editor of the Blizzard, Jonathan Wilson, who's currently working on a history of Argentinian football. And here to tell us all the reasons that Martin O'Neill's boys are going to stuff Italy in the Euros. Expert on all things Serie A, James Horncastle! <laughs> Jonathan, would this be the most shocking title victory I know according to Sky all things started in English football in 92-93 but going back in the history of English football the most shocking title win Leicester yeah I, I think it probably would be and, and actually Sky is part of the reason for that that I, I think realistically there, there are two candidates for I mean talking post second world war because yeah, pre-second world war is a very very different game but post second world war I think you look at Ipswich in 1962 who yeah, five years earlier, they'd been in, in, in the third division. They'd, they'd never played in the top flight before. They get promoted the first season in the top flight under Alf Ramsey, playing the, this, you know, what we now say was a, you know, a sort of lopsided 4 3 3, but something that was very um, radical for the time. And teams just don't know how to deal with it. They win the league. Everybody's then seen them twice. And so the start of the next season, they play Spurs in the, in the, Champions, in the uh, Community Shield, Charity Shield. And Spurs have worked them out and they beat them 5 1. And they, I think they only won two of the first 13 games of the season, at which Ramsey's appointed England manager. He stays on at Ipswich. And eventually, when he leaves the end of the season, they, they finish lower mid-table. And they never, you know, they've never been close since. I mean, that Ipswich in 62 was shocking. I think the... <coughs> sorry, excuse me. I think the other team that have a, have a good claim are, are Forrest in, in 77-8. Um, to, to go from being mid-table Division 2, then they get promoted, and then suddenly the first season they, they win the league... But I, I think what's what's different about those two is that Forest happened 16 years after Ipswich, and in between those those two two victories, I, I think you had eight different title winners in the 60s. Um, through six years before Forest had won it, you had Derby who'd won it, who essentially were a you know a similar sized club to Forest, but get promoted for exactly the same reason, um, the same manager, many of the same players. And okay, they, they messed around for, I think, two seasons before they won the league, but it showed it was possible, and then they win it again in 75. So extraordinary as Ipswich and Forest achievements were, they were in a context of surprising things did happen. And the other thing in the 70s, you had Sunderland win the FA Cup from the second division in 73, you had Southampton win it from the second division in 76, you had West Ham win it from the second division in 1980. So 
the idea that teams could come from nowhere and win things was sort of was current. Whereas, you know, the last even vaguely surprising winner we've had of the Premier League is, is Blackburn. And even that, you know, that's just not comparable because Blackburn had finished like, fourth the year before, second year before that. They had an absolutely unprecedented amount of money that they'd spent, which Leicester haven't. I mean, one of the things, I, you know, I won't go into this too much because I'm, I'm aware I'm talking a lot, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you, I think you've seen this season that the, the tsunami of wealth that swept through the Premier League with, with the new TV deal and everything uh, means that the, the clubs who did have a huge financial advantage, Chelsea because of Abramovich, City because of Sheikh Mansour, Manchester United because they're Manchester United, um, that advantage is no longer so pronounced. So you, the likes of West Ham can sign Dimitri Payet or, or um, Palace can sign Kabay. I think Leicester maybe have benefit from that in that they've been able to hold on to players. But they haven't spent huge amounts of money. They're not even in that middle class. They've, you know... I, I remember reading a piece in, uh, be, in the beginning of February saying, you know, how, how ridiculous it was to think a year ago Leicester had been bottom of the league and, and now they're top. Well, a, a year ago now, you know, even six weeks on from when that piece was written, they were still bottom of the league. <laughs> and that, that'll continue to be the case for another month. I mean, <laughs> that's how ridiculous this is. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if Leicester did win it, it they would be the, the, the most shocking winners of the league. You're obviously all big Blizzard fans, so you know that's John's shortest answer of the night <laughs> that that's going to be so far. Uh, James, I see uh, Ranieri a few weeks back said, I told the players I trusted them and would speak very little of tactics, which is very un-Italian of Claudio Ranieri. Seems to be working all season, though. Yeah, I mean, he spoke uh, quite eloquently about how he discerned a wariness in the Leicester players when he basically showed up. They thought they were going to get Fabio Capello, essentially, someone who was going to drill them from uh, from the first break of dawn to uh, to the end of the day. That they, he was going to bore them to death with tactics, and uh, yeah, he's a laid back character. And he, he yeah, he basically said to them, "Look, football is meant to be about fun. That's why we all got into this game in the first place. If you think about it as a job, basically, you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I want you to come to work and enjoy it. And uh, yeah, he's." kind of stepped back and basically said, look, actually, what a lot of what Nigel Pearson did, particularly in fitness and in conditioning, was very good. Um, if you look at how Leicester finished last season, why change that? So, yeah, I think that is an admirable trait in a manager, basically, because so many people come in and say, I'm going to impose myself on this job. I'm going to make myself as different as the guy who came before me. He didn't do that. But I think the idea that he's basically just left this alone is also unfair on Claudio Ranieri. Because, you know, if you listen to what Jamie Vardy was saying only the other day, in terms of the tactical preparation that they do, the opposition analysis when it comes to you know, breaking down not just a team, but individual players in that team, um, he says he's second to none. You know, Claudio Ranieri apparently spends, you know, his nights... Not asleep with his wife, but, you know... I mean, there's not much to do in Leicester, let's be honest. Um, he breaks down 90 clips of players. He'll give them... Four, uh, of each player, give them 45, say, this is what he does all the time. You go out and execute. You go out and nail that. And you do it. And I, I, I think people keep underestimating Leicester by saying that opponents are underestimating Leicester. 
Um, do, do, do you think that, um, you know, this famous volley by, by Vardy when he said afterwards, I noticed that he was staying off his line. Do you think actually Ranieri might have said, Jamie, look at this keeper. Actually, he strays off his line. You can use that. I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. in, in the slightest. Um, yeah, I think as to go back as well on the how unlikely this story is. I mean, you think of, of Ranieri's career, um, you know, someone who's, who's always been this, this nearly man. But has had success, you know, has had won titles in the third division, in the second division. You know, was so, so close to stopping Jose Mourinho from winning a treble at Inter. You know, just a fortnight before the end of the season, you know, Roma were leading that title race in Serie A. They then lose to Sampdoria. Philippe Mexes breaks down in tears on the, on the bench. He has come close. And I think it would be the greatest reward for what has been an underestimated career. And um, I, I, I would add to that the fact when he took over Monaco, uh, of course, winning the, you know... Uh, they didn't have the much money. They were very much like less money. No, but what, what he did, uh, the season after they were promoted, which was also the season when he was sacked by Dimitri Rybolovlev, uh, he achieved the highest total of points of any club ever coming second, and that was behind PSG. So, obviously, the man has got some qualities. But I think it's... It's, it's a nice counterpoint. If you look back to the final day of 2003-04, when Arsenal complete their unbeaten season, and Ranieri says his tearful farewells to, to Chelsea and everybody sort of thinks, well, he was a nice bloke, but probably really wasn't quite up to it. And 12 years later, it could be Ranieri, who of those two is next to win the league. And the other interesting point about that is, who was the team Arsenal beat on the final day of the season, 2003-04? team who'd been relegated two weeks earlier, Leicester City. Can I say, actually, one thing? Maybe some of you know this, but you know the nickname for um, Claudio Ranieri. Uh, Dead man walking, right? Do you remember that? The man who coined it is sitting here. <laughs> That's him. It is absolutely true. It's this Jonathan who came up with that expression. Jonathan, you're pleading guilty to this? Yeah, absolutely. Well... <laughs> <laughs> You also um, called him the Tinker Man. As no, well. I, I did, that's not mine. <laughs> what, what happened? I was I, I was watching the um, the Tom Hanks film, The Green Mile. Is it called The Green Mile? The, yeah, the, it is it called is, The Green yeah. Mile. Yeah. And obviously, the, the phrase "Dead Man Walking" is used. And I'd never heard it before that film. And then the next day, I had to write a piece for the Financial Times about Ranieri. And I thought, oh, that that fits. I put that in. And then the Guardian in those days used to do sort of a digest of other papers, and. They, for some reason, they, they, they used that in the first paragraph. And somebody at Ranieri's next press conference said, you've been called a dead man walking. How do you respond to that? So suddenly every paper runs with it, and it, it sticks. But, yeah, it was, it was me. How important, <laughs> how important is what Leicester is doing this season? It's, is this a total blip? Is it a one-off, or is it something that potentially uh, should put pressure on all teams of their level to say to themselves, actually, we should... We should all be striving to at least qualify for the Champions what League. Is, what is puzzling is the fact it's happening now because you've got to think Leicester were only promoted from the Championship two years ago. So which means that even though their finances are really good, uh, actually I think they published their accounts today, yeah. 34 million euros uh, profit over last uh, season, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, They're the 24th richest club in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but that's... It doesn't matter. The world doesn't matter. No. There is, there is a Premier League. That's the only thing that matters. And, uh, um, Real fairy tale. The, no. <laughs> that is not quite true. Uh, when, when they started uh, their first season back in the Premier League, their budget was actually £34 million. 
so which is what, 40 million euros, give or take a million or two. Um, what is interesting is that this has happened at a time when the new contracts haven't kicked in yet. Mm. So what is going to happen when you have those new contracts which are going to bring in, we think, about 10 billion euros over three years to be shared more or less equally between uh, the 20 shareholders of the Premier League. It means that the spending power, which they're already exercising, thinking we need to do that to be part of the, you know, to be the guys who win the lottery, you'd have more uh, Stokes buying uh, Imbula for 25 million, which is absolutely crazy, and, um, and of Leicester being able to hang on to Riyad Mahrez and, and Jamie Vardy and so forth. So in a way, that is surprising. I think that it is, but it's not going to be so surprising in the years to come. You do wonder if it becomes the new normal or whether this is a blip, because, as Jonathan was saying, um, about um, these teams being able to well, having a spending power that they haven't had before. That's true, but also at the same time, the players that, you know, Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, would be looking at to sort of make the difference for them. They essentially all want to play for Barcelona and Real Madrid. And so, at the end of the day... The for United, the time being. Well, for the time being, but the, you see United, Arsenal and Chelsea kind of end up competing for the same players as the teams below them in the Premier League now. And those, those, those teams can offer them wages, can pay the transfer fees to actually bring them to their clubs. And if that's what we've seen. If you calculate how much money those clubs, the club which should get the least money, I think, from next season onwards, uh, will still get something just in TV rights around 140 million euros per year. That is enough to put 20 English clubs within the, probably the top 25 in the world? Yeah. Probably. Um, and there's a moment as well when uh, you are able, you start to be able to compete with the big guys. And the big guys will only be three and a half or four. We all know who they are. And, um, you know, you can, you can imagine a time when those clubs would be able to come back and, yes, to try to prize whatever. And especially to, to hold on to the players. Because that's one thing, the Premier League, all the star players they've had over the past ten years or so have all gone. Mm. David Beckham. Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo. Carlos Tevez, Luis Suarez, even Rudolf Nistelrooy left for Real Madrid. I mean, so, yeah, it can change. I want to move on from Leicester to one of their victims so far this season. Uh, do we know who uttered this quote in the last 24 hours? We lack self-belief that we can actually be champions. I think we can win the Premier League with the players we have. <laughs> that said, we lack a certain hunger. Alexis Sanchez. Alexis Sanchez, indeed. That's, uh, that's a fairly staggering quote, <laughs> is it not? Can you say that again? Yeah, so he's saying that we uh, lack self-belief and we lack a certain hunger to, to win the league. You, you seem stunned by this, guys. Well, I mean, I, I think the, the issue with Arsenal... Yes, is, is the answer. Is, it's fairly obviously mental. I mean, if you... How do you mean mental? Well, in that... <laughs> in, in that... Um, mental strengths? Uh, if, Wenger was criticised for a long time for not changing his approach, for always playing in the same way. But he has changed it in the last two years. And yet you look at this season, and if you do a, um, a, a comparison of equivalent games, so if you look at what they did at home against Swansea this season, what they did at home against Swansea last season, loss, loss. But if you compare game to game, you, you replace the relegated teams with the promoted teams, they're actually one point better off this season than they were last. Over the last 10 years, they've averaged 1.92 points per game, had they beaten Swansea, then they'd have been averaging, I think, 1.91 points per game. But as it is, 1.8 something. They, you know, they, they just keep playing. 
It's, it's, it's some weird variant of, of Les Dawson's piano playing. They're playing the same wrong notes, just in a different order. I guess I'm just surprised that the players are actually, or one of them anyway, is actually acknowledging that. I think, think we all understand that they lack a certain amount of self-belief, but where does it, all, where does it leave Wenger? Where does it leave Arsenal? Uh, in, in a pretty delicate place, doesn't it? Um, but what would you say if they beat Tottenham on Saturday? Well, this is the thing. Spurs are the, uh, Arsenal are the new Tottenham, aren't they? <laughs> no, the thing is that I mean, when you you, you look at, um, especially I think honestly, the performances since the beginning of this particular calendar year have been uh, astonishingly bad. And w- what is really weird is that we thought for a very long time. And I know Jonathan has written about that. That one of the main problems with Arsenal was the tactical rigidity of of, of Wenger. He's um, got on board a number of people whom actually we didn't know about before he mentioned that at the uh, Arsenal AGM in November, uh, a team of analysts who work very, very closely with him, far more closely than Steve Bold, for example. <laughs> also, and the, the old guard went to uh, Villa, didn't they? And they've done a really good job. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. And uh, he's, he's listening to these people, and he says, we did this and we did that. And we've seen, the, we've seen the, the proofs of that. We've seen the game against Manchester City. Uh, we've seen the game against uh, Bayern Munich. We've seen the game against Manchester United and so forth. There are plenty of examples to show that this has changed. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, what hasn't changed is this amazingly capacity to crumble. You know, I mean, I, I think there's um, some scientists have, have identified the, the time it takes for a cookie to crumble in a cup of tea. And I think with Arsenal, it's a bit the same thing. You just wonder, which month is it going to be this year? And it appears Sometimes it crumbles really quickly. August, yeah. it's happened. Yeah. Uh, we're looking, yeah, we're looking, yeah, January. Can, we probably can go back and say January started to crumble. Mm. Is Wenger still bulletproof within the club, though? Say they lose to Tottenham, they go back to the Emirates, they, the atmosphere is toxic. Can he ride through all that, no problem? Uh, no. Really, his, his job is No, I, I, I genuinely think that, um, especially because of the situation in the league and the fact that it was basically the motorway was free, everybody was parked on the, on the wayside with engine problems, you know, like Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United, everybody, Leicester and Tottenham are in front, for goodness sake. And um, <laughs> so you think, okay, the road is ours, let's enjoy it. And they're not enjoying it at all. The minute they were placed in a situation where they could genuinely do something about it, they froze. And I can't see why... I mean, they might win against Tottenham on Saturday, but they probably will freeze the next game if they're in a position where they can exploit that. So um, You do get the, t- the sense with Arsenal that this is the team that feels the pressure the most. Of, of, of all the teams in the title race, they're the ones who just... You could say they buckle on it, because they do, but... It doesn't get to anyone like it gets to them. I think, and, and that's because they know this should be their time, and it's not their time. And I think perhaps Jack Wilshere is the, is the symbol of this Arsenal because he's had another injury. So Groundhog Day for the for the club, Groundhog Day but for Jack Wilshere. Diaby's moved on though. So, oh Diaby, Paul yeah. Diaby, um, he was about to take part in the game last night. He was. He was. Yeah. But did he? No. no. Also. <laughs> During, during his initiation song for Marseille, he almost fell off a chair. <laughs> so, there you go. And Fletcher did the Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah, the Fletch Prince of Bel-Air. Oof. There you go. Philippe, 
Who's we didn't rehearse this beforehand. <laughs> no, it's an incredible double act. Yeah. Who within Arsenal says to Arsene Wenger at the end of the season, you're gone? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Wenger. He's the one who makes the decision. Well, you could, you could imagine, um, I don't know, some kind of weird um, schizophrenic episode in which he's in front of his mirror and says, you're not good enough. But apart from that... <laughs> Taxi driver, Wenger style. Very, I am very disappointed with you. And I think that... Uh, <laughs> Do you think he's been a bit handbrakeish in stepping away? Is that his problem? I, I think, I mean, he's genuinely pissed off at the moment. You've only got to listen to the nonsense he's spouting at every press conference at the moment, because it is genuine nonsense. Um, and I think he, he, he genuinely believed he had turned a corner when they won the FA Cup. Genuinely did. Before that, I think perhaps we all were there, uh, the press conference before and the press conference after the FA Cup final. Before it, we, we genuinely thought, 2-0 down, he's out. They won, and suddenly he, was, he felt rejuvenated. And he got Alexis, he got Petr Cech, so he addressed two major issues in his squad. And even with that, he's actually doing worse. So he's very tough on himself. I don't think anybody is tough on him within the club. And certainly not Ivan Gazaidis, certainly not Stan Krunker who is using the club as um, collateral for raising money for uh, his farming projects in Colorado. I'm not inventing this. Mm. And uh, so you, you look at the financial results, they're fantastic. And for the Arsenal fans, the only solution or way forward is the idea of uh, seeing a coup d'etat. Alisha Uzmanov, <laughs> this wonderful man, yeah. take control of the club. <laughs> And, uh, and tell Wenger to go. Jonathan, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I think there's... I'll, I'll be brief, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, Wenger after the Barcelona game, yeah, he could, he could very easily have portrayed that as being, you know, we, we played pretty well there, we, we defended well, and, you know, it's Barcelona, what can you do? They got messy. And he was actually really angry. He mm-hmm. dismissed the team as naive. I, I thought that really showed how, how pissed off he was. But I think what must make it worse is he must look at what, uh, what Pochettino's doing and everything that Wenger has talked about for the last decade and more has been about developing your own youth and doing it on a limited budget when you've got a stadium to pay off. Well, Tottenham, we've got a stadium to pay off. They've made a £6.3 million profit over the last four transfer windows. So even if you take the bail money out of the equation, which makes the profit even bigger, the time Pochettino's been at the club, a £6.3 million profit. And if you look at their, their, their first-team squad... You've probably, you know, Peter first team probably has seven of them at 25 or under. And of those seven, another three or four have replacements who are 25 or under. So Pochettino is using this model that Wenger's talked about that we sort of got into habit thinking, well, that's not possible anymore. Well, it turns out it is possible, you know, eight miles across London. I also, I also think that, take Manchester United, for example, they've been hammered for basically sitting on their hands and not sacking Louis van Gaal because... They've, yeah, the, the fans have been saying, look, this is the, in terms of the window of opportunity, in terms of getting new managers, blue chip managers, there's never been a time like this in terms of getting a, you know, a, a Pep Guardiola, a Klopp, um, a Mourinho, all these great, all these great managers. Um, and you know, Arsene Wenger is basically sat there. They're missing that opportunity. You know, in terms of, I mean, if, if you look at all those, all those managers, they're going to be in jobs next season. If, if Arsenal decide to make a change, 
where do they go? They've missed out on all those big names. They missed out on Carlo Ancelotti as well. Yeah, who really wanted that job. All right, have you got any questions? Anyone brave enough to kick things off so far? I think we should have a couple of microphones going around the place. Just stick your hand up if, uh, if you're going to ask. We've got one in the middle here, is it? Uh, there's certainly one over the end of the front row here. On the uh, right-hand side as I look. How are you doing? Uh, this is more about the uh, Champions League as a whole. Um, like more and more we're seeing that there's only like three teams who can realistically win it. Like maybe five, six years ago you would have thought teams like Arsenal would have had a realistic chance. Now Arsenal? Mean, well, <laughs> ten years ago they were in a final. But right now you're... Arsenal? Well, they are in the final ten years ago. But like six, seven years Arsenal. ago you had, you had Inter in the final. Nine years like ago. Even Juventus. Ten years Juventus ago. Juventus last, uh, last season, like that's an anomaly. But when do you think uh, a team that isn't Bayern, Real, or uh, Barca, or even PSG or City, they're the only two teams I can realistically see challenging that kind of monopoly, will there be a change in the future, or is it just going to be them and everyone else? When Leicester get in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's two separate issues sort of come together in that question. Uh, one is the nature of the Champions League, which seems to... I mean, it, it, it's a... It's become a kind of quasi-franchise system. Um, it's, it, it operates actually in terms of um, being slightly unpredictable, but still the cream basically rising to the top. It, it operates very well that you've never had a team retain it, so there's enough unpredictability there. You don't get dynasties. Um, but at, at the same time, you, you get the same big teams regularly making up... You, know, you can pretty much predict at the beginning of every season five or six of the eight quarter-finalists. But what that actually means is that because you've got Kent, good, yeah, I mean they were on my list. I don't know if they're on yours, but um, because you get big teams getting to the quarterfinals regularly, there's a sense of if you hang around the quarterfinals long enough, eventually you will win the Champions League, which I, I think you know, if you look at Chelsea in 2012 is is the best example that. Yeah, Chelsea have been trying to win the thing for six or seven years, or maybe even longer than that, seven or eight years with a reasonable chance of, of winning it. And then almost as soon as you think, well, they've got no chance this season, they go and do it because they, they pull out great performances and have a little bit of luck in, in two or three key games in a row. So I think that possibility is always there. Uh, but that's a little bit different. I mean, I, I take the sort of spirit of the question that we're, not, we're unlikely to get a team like Porto in 2004 suddenly coming through. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why... Yeah, we, we've had talk recently again of, of an idea of the European Super League. And I think that's... You know, the, the, the temptation is always to dismiss that and say, oh, it's just the clubs angling for the biggest share of the, of the pot. And I think it probably is. But equally, every time we, we hear that, I think we do move slightly closer to it because the economic conditions are such that it makes more and more sense. Uh, from, from their point of view, from a financial point of view, I think it would be a terrible thing for football. But you look at the case of PSG, who are 20... Two, three, eight, who cares? Tw 20 many points clear. And they're always going to win the French League unless something goes catastrophically wrong. I know Bayern are trying to mess they with the They lost their last game. I, I know. and I'm sure we all felt, felt the world shake on its axis. Yeah. Bayern also lost their last game, which kind of ruins my argument slightly. But Bayern will win the Bundesliga this season. You know in Spain there's... I mean, maybe three teams have a chance, realistically two, and one of them's... Radically underperforming. Olympiakos has already won the title in Greece. Olympiakos have won what, 11 in a row, 12 in a row? I can't remember how many a, it a is, big but it's in the first row. time ever that a Greek champion is... But, uh, I mean, is Olympiakos is slightly irrelevant in terms of the, the, the 
top level it's of the Champions the earliest League. title win. Yeah, ever. but they're still they're there year in year yeah. out. So, so I mean, I, I, yeah. To so embarrass the point Arsenal. Is that you have certain. Yeah. <laughs> you have certain teams for whom the domestic competition is almost irrelevant. It's pointless. So it's meaningless to them. And so you understand why they'd want more regular fixtures against better teams that are actually near their level. So that, that's why a Super League, I think, is... I don't think it's going to happen in the next five years, but I think it's closer than it's ever been before. Although it's not going to help what we're talking about there, the idea of an underdog coming going. Oh, no, no, it's going to write off completely. It's the opposite, really, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> we've had to reframe what an underdog is in the Champions League over the last decade or so, because... Arsenal... <laughs> Arsenal, yeah, 2006, plucky Arsenal. But, I mean, Arsenal uh, are, what, the seventh richest team in the world? But what I was about to say was you, look at, you do get underdogs you know, getting to the final. Dortmund, in some respect, were an underdog. Juve. Atletico Madrid. Juve. In what world do we live in in which Juve are an underdog? In what, in what world do we live in in which you want to root for Juventus? I'm going to <laughs> go for a shower... And, um, but they are, you know. And so, in that sense, you you have you have a run of what three finals in, in, in recent times where where underdogs have actually made it. You know, someone has surprised. Someone has got the luck of the draw. And I think that's the big thing for City this season is that they. And I, I still can't see them. I still can't see them doing it. But there is a pattern. I mean, even Inter in 2010. I mean, they should never have won that Champions League. Yeah, that's true. People forget that because the cult of Jose Mourinho, of course, Jose Mourinho was in charge. They were going to win it. You know, he's a specialist in success. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it happens. One of the things which has changed as well is that the UEFA Cup used to be a finishing school. It was the finishing your education sort of school. And from there you sprang towards the European Cup. And that was the case of Porto, for example, with Mourinho. But there, are, there were many, many other examples of that. This is gone. Uh, the minute that your club is mod- you know, moderately successful in the Europa League, you can be damn sure that all the best players are going to go to the same, same old, same old clubs. So um, it's very difficult to see a way that um, this stranglehold is going to be broken. All right, great question. Where are we going to next? As long as it keeps the same system. Great. Look, this is somebody over here. Can't quite see. Yeah, Chelsea fans since 2003 here. Got in like a lead balloon. How old are you? 16. 16? Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> how's Conte going to do? How will Conte fit in? Okay. Um, I think if you look at the profile of manager they're, they're looking for, we were led to believe that Diego Simeone was going to be their, their first choice. Um, Conte is, um, I think, uh, as close as you can get to Diego Simeone in terms of the intensity that he expects in training, in playing, um, he is an interesting character because, I mean, in many respects, I expected him to, um, to become a Sir Alex Ferguson figure of Juventus um, because of his, his past there as a player, the captain of the club. He identified with that club so closely. Did you so say closely. his pastor? Huh? <laughs> yes, his pastor. Oh, okay. Which is, is incredible. Um, <laughs> Antonio Conte's fettuccine is, is, is unrivaled. But, no, his past there... Um, ah. There you go. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Juve's uh, motto is um, winning isn't important, it's the only thing that counts, which uh, uh, 
makes you understand a lot of some of the things that they've done in the past. Um, and uh, how many are they claiming these days? Uh, 33. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But wow. um, but I mean, this is a guy who's so fixated on winning. Um, he's so utterly relentless. It goes to the very essence of who he is that he called his uh, his daughter uh, Vittoria, Victory. Um, but I mean, if if a manager in England called their their daughter Victoria, I don't think much would be made of it. It would be, be a patriotic but, act. Yes, of course it would. Um, but I mean, in, if if we um, look ahead to a Premier League next season where there is going to be Pep Guardiola at Manchester City and possibly Jose Mourinho at Manchester United, both of whom, when they're in the Liga with uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid, put up 100 points in a season. You know, he's, he's the only one who I can see who's, who has that relentlessness in his track record at Juventus, where even when there's really nothing else to play for, he still demands that they go out and win every game, even when they've already got the title wrapped up. Is he a little too intense, though? Is he a little bit too Mourinho-like for Chelsea right now? I mean, he's, uh, he's uncompromising. Um, yeah, I mean, again, as I said, I expected him to stay at Juventus for a long, long time. Instead, he looked at it three-year cycle. Um, he made um, demands of the club, um, which they didn't satisfy. Um, peculiarly, one was that they absolutely had to sign Juan Cuadrado, one of, uh, one of, one of <laughs> who then went to Chelsea, and he basically spat his... Uh, his, his dummy, and, uh, and, and decided to leave. Um, yeah, he also likes to make out that he sacrificed himself so that Arturo Vidal and Paul Pogba stayed at the club um, because he's such a uh, bianconero martyr and, uh, and all that sort of thing. But in terms of, I mean, the comparisons with Mourinho, when Mourinho left Inter in, uh, in 2010, you know, they have been looking for someone who has the same cult of personality, and Conte is... Is, is definitely that figure. Um, yeah, he picks battles with people in, in the press, even when it's unnecessary. I remember Pep Guardiola complimenting um, his Juventus on the style of play, the results that they were getting, and he kind of just all of a sudden launched in a very unnecessary tirade about who is this Guardiola, what does he know, he's full of shit, and all this sort of thing, which you know is completely unnecessary. And then um, at the end of uh, his time at Juventus, you know, they... They've been knocked out of the Champions League in the group stages, um, losing to Galatasaray on an ice rink in Istanbul. And, uh, and they still made the semi-finals of the Europa League, but no one really takes that seriously. So they weren't going to give him any credit for that. So he basically said, look, we're going to be the first team in Italy ever to break the 100 points barrier. They wrapped up the title in, uh, at the end of April, and uh, the players were kind of in a party, sort of had a party atmosphere around them. They all wanted to celebrate. And there was a famous incident before um, their final game against Cagliari when they were on, I think, was it 99 points. And uh, Gigi Buffon, so the, yeah, the figurehead of that club, the captain of the club, a legend, um, basically comes into a team meeting a minute late because he's been discussing the bonuses for, for winning the title with their general manager. And Antonio Conte just absolutely tears him to shreds and says, you know, you, are, you, you should be ashamed of yourself. Gigi, you of all people, you disgust me. Oh, God, get out. Right, we're going to go and do... We're going to do 300 laps of the pitch because we can. You know, fuck you, Gigi. And all this sort of thing. <laughs> and, yeah, all the other players around were just like, oh, my God, what the hell is he on about? What's he, get, what's he going for here? It put them on edge. They went into the game. They thought, God, we've really got to buck our ideas up here. They won, and they finished the season on 102 points. He got it what he wanted. And that's exactly what um, I think you could expect at Chelsea. All right, next question. 
over the left-hand side as I look. Uh, have you, got, you haven't got a microphone at the moment, have you? Oh, you've got one on the way down to you now, yep. There you go. Um, just a question about uh, football academies. So if you're in this sort of Man City have invested a huge amount of money in their football academy in the last few years, are they ever going to see the benefit of that? If, and equally, if you're an extremely promising young player, is there any value in going to you know, one of the biggest club sites in Europe as opposed to going to somewhere like Southampton where they have a policy of giving first-team opportunities to kind of talented young players? Uh, I would question Southampton, by the way, because I think the policy has changed. Um, if you look at the number of players from the academy who have integrated the team over the last 16, 18 months, uh, it's zero. It's Pochettino, basically, isn't it? It was Pochettino who I mean, was doing The academy is clearly giving... I, th I think that's the key point, that, that Southampton's academy is clearly very, very good. I think, I think Manchester City's academy, from everything... I mean, it's, it's difficult to know from the outside, but everything you hear makes you believe it's very, very good. But that doesn't mean anything unless you've got a manager who's going to give you the chance. I mean, Chelsea's academy is clearly or brilliant. Or the FA Cup. Because they, yeah. Well, Chelsea is a crazy case. Yeah, they, 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 they win they, the FA Youth Cup every year. They won it five of the last six years? Um, maybe four and six, but they also they won, and with, with remarkably good performances, the, the, the UFA Youth League. And they beat all the best teams in Europe. And yet none of those players get a game. And then Charlie Musonda, who is considered one of the greatest, um, uh, you know, most promising players in Europe, doesn't even get into in the 23 or 25. Uh, Izzy Brown... Excuse me, sorry? It's, it's a new model, which is used by um, uh, Manchester City, which is used by Chelsea, and which also is going to be used by Monaco, because Monaco, I don't think many people know that, are about to buy quite a substantial share of Reading. And they're going to use Reading as a kind of feeder club, or a fl feeder and feeding club, in the same way that Duchatelet, for example, is ruining Charlton at the moment, or the Pozzos are not ruining the clubs that they're in charge of. But that's the model that you see more and more. Uh, clubs which control other clubs. Um, I was recently in Brussels with the guys from FIFPRO, and one of them, so it's not me saying it, <laughs> lawyers, um, <laughs> it was the chairman, and there was no Chathamras rules, and he said, oh, yes, Tovan Segelen, he said, oh yes, Roban Abramovich, who owns 16 clubs in Europe, including uh, Vitesse Arnhem. He said it. So what you have is that you've got Manchester City doing what they do in Melbourne, doing what they're doing in New York, bringing Chinese investors in. So they're going to be, there's absolutely no doubt there's going to be um, something city in the Chinese Super League before long. Chelsea do the same thing. And it's a new model. And for the young players... I have to say, I have no real answer to your question because it, it can seem like a dead end for them, uh, apart from the fact that they're getting pretty decent salaries. But that's one of the most, uh, I have to say, most worrying developments uh, recently uh, in, in club football is the fact that there doesn't seem to be much will, especially from UEFA, when Mr. Infantino was Secretary General. There doesn't seem to be any uh, will as well from FIFA to actually stop this kind of practices. And what you will end up with is basically franchises and sub-franchises. That's my greatest fear. You can just go to Manchester United now and wait for an injury run, and then you're almost, almost guaranteed a, a shot. Uh, next question. 
There are a few hands going up, which is always good to see. We go in the middle here. We will get further towards the back in the second half. Hi. Um, considering the absolute disaster that has been Randy Lerner's ownership of Aston Villa, um, do you think more and more managers are going to be able to just coast by and really blame the ownership as looking at Villa, there's very little blame going towards Remy Gerd and even towards Tim Sherwood at this point. An awful lot of people are just accepting that the job was untenable to begin with because so much bad ownership. Do you think this is going to become more and more prevalent where fans are going to start turning their blame from managers and look more and more towards owners? Well, I think it'll be a case-by-case basis, but I think what you say about Villa is absolutely true. I mean, um, how much can I say? Um, All of it, Jonathan. There's, there's a, a friend of a friend of mine who ended up having a fairly senior position at Villa. And I don't embarrass him by, by saying too much about who he is because he's sort of let slip certain things to my mate. I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to be known in public. But essentially, he worked for one of Lerner's companies. Lerner comes in and says, right, does anybody like football? And he sort of looks around sheepishly and everybody's sort of got their heads down. He's sort of, I do. And it's sort of, right, can you do a feasibility study into which, which Premier League team I should buy? And he comes back many months later and says, none of them, you'll just lose an absolute fortune. And he went, okay, where would I lose least? And he went, well, Aston Villa's the, the, the great, you know, the, the, the Birmingham, a huge city that doesn't really have a, uh, a team of the very, very highest level and, and you know, great stadium. Everything is there, really, for, you know, potential crowds of 40, 45,000. Um, everything's there for it to take off. And um, this friend of a friend ends up you know, basically getting this role at Villa, having had no background in football at all, and having to sort of reverse... Tim Sherwood, is this Tim? <laughs> <laughs> As you know, Tim's a lot closer than a friend of a friend. Um, and you know, he, he ends up reversing the decisions of the person Lerner put in before him which had just you know, basically got rid of a whole load of people at the club who might not have had fantastic business backgrounds but understood the club, understood the area. He ended up sort of bringing them back in. And the whole thing just seems to have been a, you know, a shambles from the beginning. I think um, Martin O'Neill perhaps was, was not a great manager for that club at that time as it became. Um, I think there was a lot of frustration that Randy Lerner felt that he just couldn't get hold of Martin O'Neill. He kept, on, he kept his phone off seemingly doesn't know what a laptop is. Like, he never answered emails. So he would just go missing for sort of 72 hours, tra- tracking down some murder site in Saddleworth or something. Um, and, and, I mean, at an international level, I think that doesn't matter at all, as long as he turns up for the games. But obviously, you know, when, when you're looking to... Um, you, you as a club owner who doesn't really know what's going on is, is what we want to say, well, hang on, why did we lose that game at the weekend? Or why am I reading in the press that this player is being sold? You, know, you want to have your manager there 24-7 to find out what's going on. And, and from what I understand, Martin O'Neill wasn't necessarily there. So I think that, that was maybe part of the reason for the disconnect that grew up between Randy Lerner and the club. And it's, yeah, it's been an open secret for two or three years that Lerner's been looking to get out. But the problem is that as Villa get worse and worse and worse, then they become less and less appetising as a, as a team to buy. And you know, I, I guess next season, if a value really drops radically... They may be worth worth picking up because you know they'll, they'll obviously be cheaper than they are now. They'll still have a parachute payments for three years now. Is it four years now? I mean, they've extended the parachute payment period. You've still got that huge stadium, which is a great asset. Um, 
you do have a squad of players who don't really. Uh, you know, the recruitment policy there is is bewildering to everybody, I think, including Tim Sherwood, from what we've we've read in his various columns. Not a great introduction to the Premier League for Remy Gard. Is there anything he could have done in this situation to? We ho- probably thought so. He probably thinks it's not the case any longer. Um, I think he, he took it as an opportunity. I mean, he broke away from football for personal reasons. And when I say for personal reasons, it's not because of anything dark. It's simply because he wanted genuinely to spend more time with his family. This job was doing his head in. And <laughs> this job is probably doing his head in right now. Um, and he thought, this is a magnificent opportunity. I mean, seen from the outside, I, I would imagine he talked to Gérard Rouillet about his, um, um, his stay there, short stay, which was not, in the end, so bad. They finished ninth that season. Um, he knows about Aston Villa. Remy Gard knows Aston Villa as an ex-European champion. Um, he thought he would have a bit more money, shall we say, to spend. In <laughs> S- uh, some money, uh, yeah, at least one signing maybe during uh, the... Yes. Yeah. I think that there was a little bit of... Um, it's not quite had been written on the tin here. And um, I think now it's a question of just um, sitting in and waiting for the inevitable to happen. I don't think in, in a way that, I mean, to, to go with you and, and with Jonathan, I don't think his reputation has been damaged at all by what's happening no, to no, us. No, I, I think everybody accepts it's an impossible job. And he's, at the very least, well, actually, no, this is the only thing, but he has at least retained his dignity. Yes. All right, folks, I'm seeing quite a few empty pint glasses around the front here. I presume that might be the same in other parts of the room. So we'll give you a little break. We're going to find out who Jonathan's friend of a friend is at Aston Villa. And we'll be back in 15 minutes or so. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed the first half of our Q&A event from Dublin Sugar Club. If you did, be sure to check out part two, which features more of the same. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about The Blizzard, you can head to our website, theblizzard.co.uk, or find us on Twitter at Blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D. Selling a little, or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. (laughs) 